Hi, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Here to Queer. I'm with Miles Markham again. And Miles, hello. Hello, Julie. Hello, everyone out there, whether live or later. Yes. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you all at whatever point you're listening. Miles and I were just talking about offline about coming out narratives. And it started because we were talking about people who record podcasts in the closet and how that's just a little too close to home. And then Miles was like, were you ever in the closet? Um, And I was like, no, actually, I was not ever in the closet. I was... He he used the metaphor of I was more like I was in a glass box uh, because I was always sort of out and I felt like I was in naked in public like that dream we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested actually to start there briefly before we get into all things gender expression because I'm I'm curious what are, like. This idea of like coming out of the closet and like that there's like a traditional coming out story. And you mentioned, Miles, that there was a sense in which there was never a time where we didn't feel like like other people always felt entitled to access every mm. part of our interior lives at every point in our experience. What was that? <laughs> What the heck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. I think I'll I'll start by saying that there to me is a very uh, beautiful and redemptive expression for many people around coming out. I do think it can uh, be an experience of uh, self knowledge and then uh, shared knowledge, you know, about oneself that feels. Um, liberative and uh, is like a a courageous sort of act. Um, But what you and I are talking about is something different. And uh, I think, you know, my interpretation of it is it is at least in part connected to um, a history of uh, public versus private knowledge. And a history of how some bodies in the world are considered public and other bodies get to be considered private. And, you know, in this particular case, we're talking about sexuality and we're talking about gender, but I also think that this conversation pertains um, to race as well, who who is a public body versus a private mm. body and how much, um, therefore, are you entitled to know? Mm. Um, about who they are, what they're doing, motivations and that sort of thing. Mm. And for LGBTQ people, um, yeah, we are put in this position where um, disclosure, you know, is kind of demanded of us in, in different ways at different times and in a religious context and a specifically Christian and a specifically evangelical Christian context we have all these ideas about, um, you know, the phrase is walking in the light mm. and uh, what it means to 
live an honest life is to live a transparent life. But of course, um, these teachings and these expectations are wielded against the public bodies and not the private bodies. And so I'll give you a perfect example of this. At my evangelical university, at the end of every semester, we had to submit, um, I can't remember what phrase they used, but essentially a uh, a, an inventory, a self-inventory oh, whoa. Um, to student life. And we would have student to report, life. you know, what was going well for us in our spiritual life and what wasn't. And there was uh, the explicit question, you know, around what um, sin issues, you know, uh, have come up for you and what are the ways that um, God is giving you hope in the midst of those struggles. So I would receive this form and by reading the directions and filling it out explicitly, I would respond to all of the questions. And I was under the impression that this was required for everyone. And so I no. would complete a detailed form and submit it. As a result, I would then find myself in our women's chaplain's office uh, biweekly having oh my to, God. to check in um, about everything that I detailed on my form. And it was later, um, pretty close to graduation, where I found out that this was not the way any of my friends or peers related to the inventory. And this the the expectation that was sort of unnamed for everyone is that it would just be like saying what the what student life wanted them to hear mm. and dealing with the private stuff on their own mm. and that was just never the case for me not at my university not at my church uh walking in the light and being transparent and uh, vulnerable and honest was uh, expected of me and I, I know was expected of you in a way that just was not true for the average person or even for any of the leaders in the settings that we were a part of. There was, um, I, I think, a distrust that was sort of underneath that mm -hmm. expectation of transparency. And the only way to keep uh, us sort of in check or under control or managed was to watch and to know our every move. And, and that comes from, you know, the belief that we um, are a liability. I think that yeah. that's what's going on there. That kind of glass box you lived in that I lived in is a function of imagining that you and I were a threat um, mm -hmm. to it, to the communities that we were a part of. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm curious about like, why did we feel like we were actively sinning or harboring secrets by not sharing? Like if we didn't share details about maybe fantasies we had had or desires we were feeling and got like god forbid if we had like kissed somebody if we didn't share that that in itself was like we are holding we are withholding information and we're doing something wrong whereas 
that is not the expectation of like straight folks. I remember I was doing a, I was doing an Instagram live with Kirsten Powers where I was talking about what happened at Living Hope. And I was like, uh, the conversion therapy program I was a part of, obviously. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, we would um, meet with Ricky Shillette, the executive director. I met with him for private counseling and I would share with him like, I, would, I was supposed to share with him like, you know, crushes or if I had like masturbated or like looked at porn or like, you know, and she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. How old is this man? And I was like, well, he's like 60 now. So he's probably like 45, 50 then. Or, and she was like, a grown man had a teenager in his office who was not a licensed professional who insisted that you share details about your sexual fantasies with him. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that's abusive. Mm -hmm. Like what parent would be okay with their child being in that kind of situation? Like no straight person has to do that. And I don't know if that's true or not, because, you know, there is a sense in which like, I feel like evangelicalism, purity culture. Yeah. gets Yeah. A, a lot of people in this way, I think. Like I think about like the guys groups in middle school and high school and they were all sharing like every single time they looked at porn and had like right. little filters set up to like send reports and all those things. So – but that also – that whole culture makes it really difficult as you grow up to know what is allowed to just be yours. Like what is allowed to just be mine and what do I need to be sharing with other people in my life to be living honestly? Yeah. No, and I appreciate you noting that because something I, I'm working on right now is making that distinction. And I, in my partnership, have observed um, this kind of trigger I have around uh, anytime I perceive there to be an expectation about my about sharing my interior life mm -hmm. um i i almost you know in a moment swing to the other side where i feel like no that is mine you can't have it i don't want to share it and you are not entitled uh to any part you know of mm -hmm. the way that like i am thinking and giving in any given moment until i'm ready to share it mm -hmm. um and and that to me it's a trauma response mm -hmm. um to, to what you're describing here, um, that we were told implicitly and explicitly that withholding information about ourselves and about uh, what we we're thinking, what we we're feeling, um, experiences that we were having was wrong. It was sinful and even dangerous. I don't know if the teaching was ever framed this way for you, but I was told um, that this doesn't just hurt you and the other people involved, it hurts God and it hurts your community. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then we were compared to like Ted Haggard, right? <laughs> because there were people who, <laughs> namely men who abused their power and did have like big secret, you know, sex lives going on, whether that was men like all the the Baptist ministers that were named in the Houston Chronicle, hundreds mm -hmm. of them a couple of years ago who were abusing women mm -hmm. and many of them minors. 
we were compared to them. Right. And it's like, no, we are just wrestling with questions about privacy in our own internal lives and thoughts, not abusing, like sexually abusing other people and misusing power in that way. And so it's it when it's all like combined together and then it's a really interesting question that you bring up in partnerships because I did a lot of work around that in my last relationship because it was also a trigger for me and I I I honestly had no tools to navigate it because I don't mm-hmm. think this is clear in relationships in general either and I I remember once I started thinking like I I feel like I initially kind of lost myself by choice because I was just like I throw my I would throw myself in and overshare and like that was just like my norm mm-hmm. and then Whenever I started, you know, having various questions just about my own self and how I relate to the world and not being ready to talk about that or not wanting to talk about some of those things with my partner, I was like, um, I felt like I was doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I think like there weren't models I could look to for how other people navigate what they're entitled to, what they're supposed to share, and what they're allowed to just keep for themselves. And we're not talking about anything sketchy here. Just like, like, where do I end and you begin, you know? And right. yes. <laughs> I And so I was like, well, I guess I just have to be alone forever because I can't, I can't engage this right. question and I can't feel like I'm doing something wrong by yeah. wanting my own interior life. And that doesn't mean that Um, other people were making me feel that way. It's just like we grew up in this system where that was expected. And so, I mean, what do you think? What are you learning around that? Like, what does privacy look like in a relationship? And, Mm -hmm. and what is a healthy level of expectation around what you're supposed to share and what you're allowed to keep for yourself? Yeah. Great (laughs) question. And that, leads to a set of questions and are you asking me that now or rhetorically i'm asking for any general reflections you have you don't have to share anything personally around it but i ended up and i mean this is going to be a lifelong question for me so it's not i i don't have like the answer but i ended up getting to a place of if if I if the questions I'm asking or feelings I'm having or things I'm doing that I'm not wanting to share for one reason or, an, or another are because they affect my partner in some way or hurt them or some kind of betrayal, like by effect, I mean negatively, mm-hmm. then... I need to find a way to share with them the information that is, you know, like betrayal is, is the issue. Not, mm-hmm. not um, like if it, if it were a betrayal, that would be the issue, but not just like having various, like having my own interior life. That's mine. Mm-hmm. And 
if the issue is just to be known or if the the question is just like, hey, I want to know you and knowing you means knowing various questions you're asking or struggles you're having, then there's more leeway to be like, um, I want to be known and I'll, I'll share to the extent that that feels comfortable for me and desirable, but there's not, it's not urgent and that's for me to decide when and how and, and knowing is different than having all like unmitigated access to my mm-hmm. interior life. Yes. So yeah. I don't know. That's. Yeah. I, I think that is such an important distinction. And so that's actually one of my first thoughts is about uh, kind of determining uh, some metrics for uh, at what point, like what, inside of my mind is going to impact my friends, my partners, my family. Um, because I agree with you, especially, um, if there are, if there is, uh, discomfort or pain, um, kind of hanging, you know, in the mix, I, I do believe there's some kind of moral responsibility, you know, to be, Mm -hmm. to be sharing that information. Um, but, uh, that you know, sort of case or those cases aside, I I think a part of the problem here is that there are so many unspoken expectations that we all bring to the table uh, when we start participating in partnership. And one of those expectations is around disclosure. Um, mm-hmm. And we have this idea um, that to have a partner is to be the closest person at all times to our partner and to have a kind of um, special, if not unrestricted, access to their time, their effort, Mm -hmm. their energy, their body. Their plus Um, one. Yes, and everything that comes with that. And this is an issue um, because um, it, to me, is a violation of consent. Mm. And, or at least it's an interpretation of consent that, um, at least personally for me, does not feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe um, that relationships are their healthiest uh, when we are participating um, uh, out of volition, you know, that we mm-hmm. get to make a choice uh, to show up and to share. And again, like the, it's different, you know, when there is damage um, that could unfold as a result of information that we're not mm-hmm. sharing, betrayal, um, pain, you know, all of, all of these kinds of things are an exception. But in general, um, I, I think about uh, the value and the importance in any group setting, you know, when you are creating a community to not require uh, forced sharing. You know, mm-hmm. So for example, let's say you're in a book club, you're in a support group, uh, you're in some kind of community space where you have um, you know, something like an icebreaker, very <laughs> innocuous. But there are situations where that icebreaker uh, puts many people in a situation where they feel pressure to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and that not only leads to discomfort, but it also, I think, can lead to harm. And so I really appreciate the kind of communal 
you know, guidepost of no forced sharing. And I think that should apply also in all of our relationships and that, um, you know, you modeled it, you know, by saying you, you're not expected to share. You don't have to go, you know, to places that are too personal to speak of that sort of qualifier, I think is, is such a, a healthy exercise in all of our, uh, conversations and and communications with each other is asking, you know, for um, permission, you know, to have that information about someone or to to explore certain topics that might be more sensitive than others. So, um, yeah, those are, those are my thoughts on what what we are required to share versus what we share um, out of free choice. So what's interesting about what we're naming is that there are different ways of relating that I think about like the difference between an internal and external processor. Mm-hmm. And some people need to figure things out for themselves for a while before they can share that information with other people. And some people figure it out while they're talking about it and they need to talk with somebody to know what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And that is not, there is no like, moral way of processing it's just how different people are wired but for some reason in our society and especially in partnerships and marriages and such and also in our religious communities we came from which is what's what's just interesting here it's one is moral and one is immoral Mm -hmm. one is like an act of withholding information And again, we're talking about not things that would cause pain, but just like private information. And I, I wonder like how, and I think it could be too, that there are just different kinds of like, it could be that you, if you know that about yourself and you know, like if one partner wants to just like be in the mix of everything and sharing everything and be the plus one for everything and going everywhere together and the other partner wants more of a private life and more autonomy than just going, Hey, that's okay. We don't actually, we could love each other so much and this isn't the right context for us. We're just Mm -hmm. wanting different things in this partnership. One is not right and one is not wrong. But we mainly see models of the ones that want to share everything and be sort of knit together in ways that it does make it like that's the right one and something's wrong with you if you want more privacy and autonomy. Right. Yeah. I, you know, you just saying that makes me think about how, um, you know, there, I, I can think of a conversation I had with a friend uh, where she was, um, you know, sharing very vulnerably with me things that were true about her life. And then several weeks later, um, I had talked to her about, um, you know, being in a conversation with my partner and realizing my partner did not know the same amount of information about her that I did, even though we're all mutually friends. And this friend was so surprised and she was like, oh, like, I thought you would have told your partner um, because you're partners. And I was like, no, it's your <laughs> it's your story to tell. And there is no part of you sharing that with me 
like I I would never think that that like that's something for me to tell yeah. anybody else. Yeah. Um, unless you explicitly let me know. Um, this is interesting because I'm sure you've you've had conversations with friends where they've been like, I I need to talk to somebody about this. I'm going to share this with you. Please don't share with anybody. Obviously, you can tell your partner, but please yes. don't share. And yes. it's like an, an assumption and baked like baked an expectation that obviously there is no wall between you. Like, yes. whoa, weird, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> the the phenomena that I am speaking of. Is there is this? It, it's sort of a part of this notion of like the two becoming one. You know that mm. your information is their information, their information is your information, and it's surprising um, when you learn things about each other rather than. It, expected that you would always be learning new things about each other. Yeah. Well, you're right. This two becoming one thing. And it's interesting how much our, at least, you know, American ideas of marriage and partnership are how much Christianity affects it. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this idea of two becoming one and also like even the idea of like your body is no longer your own. Your body right. is your spouse's. Right. And that's baked into some wedding vows and all those things. And like, that is an untruth. Like, and it actually can lead to abuse in a lot of contexts. Like your body is very much your own yeah. and it does not belong to your spouse or your partner. And I mean, our minds, our feelings are part of our bodies and so it is an extension of that belief. And I don't know where that belief comes from. I, it's in the Bible. And that's also where women were their husband's property. So to right. that extent, it's like they did, you know, but, but now we're no longer in that situation. And yet these teachings really affect mainstream culture when we think about partnership right um i i would also be remiss if i did not share <laughs> that the first way in which i was introduced to the concept of the two become one was not explicitly christian it wasn't <gasps> even from the united states come. it was as a result of the spice girls who had a <laughs> i beat called. you to it whoa to you're right o m g <laughs> OMG, you're right. Yeah, I, I truly, I, 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 I am at a loss for words. <laughs> that just needed to be be named. That, that's how I was introduced to that concept. But it, it does, on a serious note, lend itself, I think, to uh, enmeshment, to codependence, to um, a kind of uh, intertwinement um, that. Yeah, like uh, it ends up in a, putting people in a situation where um, their dynamics become coercive, you know, become manipulative, become um, absent, you know, of that free choice. And I think a part of this, at least in uh, a religious context, and even outside of the religious context, I know this is also true in the South, even even in public schools, is a lack of uh, sexual health education um, mm. because 
comprehensive sexual health education includes uh, a unit on consent. And that consent is not uh, only connected to what we're doing with our physical bodies and relating to other physical bodies. It it also covers what that means emotionally, socially, psychologically. Um, Mm. And, and without this information, it, people operate in the default and that default similar to, you know, the times of like the biblical authors is still patriarchal, mm-hmm. you know, is, is still rooted in the fear or outright hatred of femininity, um, of, of women, you know, explicitly. And, um, yeah, I, I think that that, that is as much a part of the problem today as it has been <laughs> throughout history. So, um, yeah, the yeah. Do they become one or do they? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I mean, okay, so we've obviously discussed all the problems around the expectations of sharing everything and not really having a sense of boundaries and self and partnerships. Have there been any resources that have helped you navigate this? Like any talks, any thinkers or books? How have you found a healthy sort of sense of what boundaries look like in partnerships? Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, like individual uh, and couples therapy has been a great resource. And I think having um, individual and couples therapy from um, professionals like who are also have different cultural backgrounds. So specifically mm. for me and my partner, having like another person of color. Um, having somebody who they themselves are LGBTQ or that is their primary client base, that's been imperative. Um, But then beyond that, I think that any conversation around, intentional conversation around intimacy, connection, belonging, and relationships is really key. And what I, I will say I've benefited the most from recently has been the way uh, that relationship therapists and coaches uh, have been willing to kind of peel back um, the cover on monogamy and how we think about that as a relational structure. And so to me, even if a person, you know, is monogamous and that feels good and feels right to them, being able to interrogate that orientation and that uh, relational uh, (laughs) structure, I think, really goes a long way in terms of discussing boundaries and discussing um, entitlement and discussing consent. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, I'll I'll come up with a a list, you know, of different podcasts and blogs and books that have been formative for me in that way. But I will say in general, um, there's something everyone can learn independent of uh, relationship structure um, from the like consensual or ethical, like non-monogamy discourse. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's worth naming. And then of course, like there is quite a bit of literature around uh, boundaries in general. I know several of the best-selling books do have some limitations around how they 
constructs the way that they talk about, think about, and practice boundaries. But um, any exploration to me is better than like none at all. So even if the resources are dated or um, desperately need to have a more uh, <laughs> diverse, you know, an inclusive lens in how they're talking about these subjects, um, talking about them at all, I think really does at least begin the conversation for a person on how they can relate more healthily to these topics. Yeah. Yeah. It did not even occur to me that I was allowed to have boundaries in a marriage until after I was married. (laughs) What? (laughs) And like my ex-wife is amazing. It's not, that wasn't her. That was me. That was just growing up in a culture where the expectation was that like boundaries were basically wrong in many contexts, but then imperative in others. And those were dictated by people in authority over me. And so I just didn't get the memo on like where it was like immoral for me to have them and where I was allowed to have them. Right. And so here we are. Yeah. And I, I think another point kind of worth noting on this, and you and I are similar in this way, but I think different personalities relate to boundaries in different ways. And I think that what I know about you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, (laughs) is that uh, our sort of predisposition is to have more porous boundaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really high identifying in like the adaptive space, Mm -hmm. uh, being able to accommodate um, others and other viewpoints and ideas and um that is for better or for worse i think it makes you and me more companionable Mm -hmm. to different kinds of people but then also puts us in a position where uh uh, (laughs) we can get swallowed up uh, by by somebody else's hopes dreams and aspirations um and, and, and other people the other side of this the polarity is um there are personalities with more rigid boundary setting. And I think the growth edge, you know, for that personality type um, is to be able to uh, resist the tendency to cut and run when mm-hmm. a rigid boundary um, has been violated and, and to be able to really uh, explore, you know, what are they holding, you know, with a, a fierceness um, that, that can be relaxed, you know, in, mm-hmm. in different ways at different times. Um, granted, yeah. you know, safety <laughs> is, is present for them. So, um, yeah. The, um, the last thing I wanted to say too, is that I think people conflate the terms, um, boundary, boundaries, uh, restrictions, and rules. Mm. Well, um, but these are three different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea of boundaries, you know, you know, you've talked about immoral versus immoral. Um, I'm not sure exactly if there is an immoral boundary to set because um, the way I understand it is boundaries are all about um, you, what mm-hmm. you will do. And you will not do, or I guess to be more clear, what I will do and I will not do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about how you are setting up 
um, your own moral compass and your own um, dynamics and participating in relationships. Rules and restrictions are what you place on an, another person mm-hmm. in attempts to um, kind of govern, be in control, or highly influence their behavior. And those are not the same thing. <laughs> well, and this gets back, this is a full circle moment to the beginning of our conversation because I don't think there's moral or immoral boundaries, but it was presented that way to me yes. early on in my religious upbringing that it was, again, wrong to mm. withhold information from them that they wanted, they demanded access to. And this is to your point about that was their rules and restrictives were restrictions, which were more about control than anything else. But the way that I internalized that was it is wrong for me to have certain boundaries. And I carried that all the way into my mid thirties and I am in my mid (laughs) thirties. As recent as today. (laughs) Um, I want to throw out one more resource that was, that's been really helpful for me. Esther Perel is a very well-known sort of couples-ish, partnership, love-ish therapist who is not perfect, but has a lot of wisdom around these issues. And I read her book, Mating in Captivity, and it was really helpful in getting at some of these ideas around privacy and autonomy and what is yours and what needs to be shared. And she didn't really like, she also didn't have answers, but she just opened up some good conversations for me around like even saying that that was allowed and that that was okay. And so I think like she brings up some interesting ideas to hold in tension with each other that can be helpful for people navigating these things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think you and I probably have the same criticism of her overall approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does, uh, (laughs) Uh, feel a little like cisgender heterosexual in in terms of how it's approaching these topics. But again, a part of that uh, is it is aimed to have mainstream appeal. Mm-hmm. Who is still the mainstream cishets? Um, but that's it. Her her writing and her podcast have also um, been significant to me, at least in opening up the conversation. Um, but it mm-hmm. has uh, specifically been. Um, queer content that has I, I've had the most resonance with, but hers is still valuable. Um, as High they, key agree yes. also. Yeah. yeah, putting them all in conversation with each other. I feel like we have to kind of like, per the huge, just sort of piece it all together to find our way. There's not going to be a Bible for queer folks navigating these kinds of questions and relationships, but we can sort of build makeshift little uh, structures for ourselves and our loves over time. And it is exciting to be at this place of healing and to feel this kind of freedom and to feel this kind of like groundedness and integrity, both to myself and to people I love and to not be like that's that's an 
from where we started in talking about never having a private interior life as young people mm-hmm. to being able to really claim that for ourselves as young adults is like, or I guess we're adults. We're not young adults, but adults <laughs> is really, is really moving and exciting. And yeah. we just celebrate that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Miles, we did not even for one second talk about the gender spectrum. <laughs> I love that about you. Uh, we will someday, but not today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being you. It's always yeah, it's always absolutely. fun. Likewise. Have a good one. All right. Take care, y'all.